Hi, welcome back to the TT Wine Explorer podcast. I'm Tanya Tomaszewska. Today's episode is about the flow of Canadian wine within our own country, or actually the blockage of that wine flow. Specifically, I'd like to consider why it is that our homegrown and locally made wines face internal trade barriers within our federation. Many aspects of the alcohol beverage industry have been and continue to be politicized. That trend continues. Health and welfare concerns, neo-prohibitionism, taxes and markups by regulators all swirl around wine. I'm often asked by Canadian friends and wine tasters why we don't see much other Canadian wine on our respective wine store shelves in our provinces or in our homes, and why it seems easier to buy wine from almost anywhere else in the world than our own country. It's a head-scratching exercise at times. If you listen to my most recent episode, episode 9, with John Skinner of Painted Rock Estate Winery, you'll recall that he and I discussed a current trade dispute between British Columbia wine producers who ship directly to consumers in our neighboring province of Alberta, and how Alberta's regulator is essentially blocking that method of distribution. Recent retribution has come in the form of Alberta preventing some of those BC producers from getting their wines into Albertan shops and restaurants. How did we get here? Today's guest is Mark Hicken, whom you may remember from episode four of my podcast series about the legacy of prohibition. Mark was a previously well-known wine and liquor industry lawyer and has more than 15 years of experience with liquor policy issues. In 2017, Mark was appointed as the British Columbia government's liquor policy advisor and was tasked with making recommendations to improve our liquor policy and regulations in this province. Mark speaks frequently at wine industry conferences, and he's often quoted in the media about issues relating to wine and liquor policy. Now, I know that Mark is getting a lot of calls right now about these and other live BC wine industry issues, so I'm delighted that he can carve out some time today to come back on my show and discuss aspects around Canadian wine trade barriers with me. I hope that you find my discussion with Mark Hicken today informative and helpful. Let's fly. Hi, Mark. Welcome back to the TT Wine Explorer podcast. Hi, Tanya. Thanks for inviting me back. So there's a lot going on right now in the BC wine industry on a number of fronts and in uh, further to some acute weather uh, happenings last month and some trade stashes with Alberta. So I'd like to focus today on those trade aspects. Um, and I guess the starting point would be to pick up where we left off in our last podcast discussion about Prohibition era in Canada. When Prohibition ended about 100 years ago now, people were then allowed to drink again, you know, albeit under many layers of regulation and authority of provincial monopolies. But as I understand it, the trade of alcohol between provinces still was prohibited at that time. Is that, is that right? And, and if so, who decided that or how was that decided? Well, what happened after Prohibition was that the federal government introduced a law called the Importation of Intoxicating Liquors Act, um, which did not permit um, the entry of alcohol into Canada or any of the provinces unless the alcohol was destined for the liquor board or liquor authority in that province. So essentially what happened was a number a fiefdom was kind of carved out for each province and each province had their own liquor monopoly system uh, which was sort of walled in by by the provincial borders for that province and it was illegal to transport um, alcohol across provincial borders or into Canada unless um, it complied with that law 
So you had to send any any wine, any wine or spirits or beer had to go to the liquor board in that province. So when did this start to change, and how did it? Is was it province by province, or did the feds modify or alter this regime? Yes. What happened was that over the years there was a lot of pressure because that kind of um, very strict regulatory regime made it technically illegal for anybody to take a bottle of alcohol from one province to another. Theoretically, you should have been reporting that and giving the bottle of wine to the liquor board before you uh, went across the border. Um, What happened was there was a lot of um, industry pressure and consumer pressure too. It doesn't sound um, very practical. <laughs> no, and not practical at all. Um, and then there was um, sort of numerous, a lot of people were upset about it. Um, one of the most um, prominent people who to do something about it uh, was Terry David Mulligan, who um, oh. also has, was a, used to be a music uh, personality and involved in the music oh. business in various ways. Um, he also is a wine lover, and he decided. Uh, I was at a meeting actually at the Vancouver International Wine Festival. Where we were discussing these issues many years back, and he he said at the meeting, he said, "Well, you know, I'm going to take it upon myself. I'm going to go across a border with a whole bunch of BC wine to and to to up to the Alberta border. Actually, he goes, I'm going to carry it across the border and see what happens. See if they come and arrest me." And he goes, I'll publicize it and see what happens. So he actually did that. uh, And there was a bunch of media coverage for that (laughs) trip. (laughs) And he took a bunch of pictures of him going to the BC-Alberta border, and he got all this wine, and he was carrying it across the border. um, And nothing happened, of course, because none of the regulatory authorities were really that interested in small fry kind of transportation of alcohol across borders. What they really were worried about was uh, commercial shipments. Um, But the pressure continued, um, and particularly on the federal government, because the linchpin of this regulatory regime was that federal law, uh, the Importation of Intoxicating Liquors Act. And over the over the ensuing years, there was a lot of lobbying done. And finally, um, the federal government, I went to Ottawa in 2012 uh, to testify before the House of Commons on this issue in support of a, um, a bill that would have amended that uh, law. And the um, federal government, later that year, there was some bumps in the road, but later that year, they actually did amend the law um, so that it was no longer um, illegal for personal transport of alcohol, or wine, actually, it was only wine to start with, um, across provincial borders. Um, it, the, the law was then further amended um, later to include beer and spirits, and then it was even further amended a bit later on um, so that the interprovincial restrictions were completely removed, and the law only applies now to importations of alcohol from outside Canada. Uh, so it's no longer illegal at the federal level right. for people to transport alcohol across provincial borders. Right. So, uh, however, uh, a little later, a number of years after you went to the House of Commons to testify, a gentleman uh, 
dared to buy some beer, a very Canadian pursuit, and drive it across some provincial borders. And that kicked off or was uh, became then part of the Como case that you also followed and um, I understand was involved with uh, some interested parties, BC wineries. Can you just uh, provide a bit of snapshot about the Como case and uh, you know the fa- basic outline and, and why it's so important? Sure. As I said, while the federal law was amended, there were still many provincial laws across the country that varied from province to province, but most of them were, there was some form of prohibition of people, a resident of a province, going to another province and buying alcohol and bringing it back uh, to that province. in New Brunswick, which is where Mr. Como was from, there was a provincial law that prevented New Brunswick residents from going to neighboring provinces and buying alcohol, um, which I understand is a fairly common pursuit for those who live close to the border because alcohol happens to be a lot cheaper at the SAQ government stores in Quebec uh, than at the New Brunswick government liquor stores. So one day, Mr. Como decided to take advantage of that um, shopping opportunity, drove across to the SAQ store um, near him. And then on his way back, he had the misfortune of being stopped in an RCMP, I think it was RCMP, sting operation that happened to be uh, looking out for people who were doing exactly that that day. So they stopped him and they fined him under the New Brunswick provincial law. Then he ended up taking um, that uh, ticket to court, uh, worked its way all the way up to the Supreme Court of Canada, who then uh, decided the case in a way that I don't think was very satisfactory to most Canadians, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so what was the outcome or what were the... what? In, in, an, in practical terms, what's the outcome of the decision? The decision really was that the provinces have the power to regulate uh, the possession of alcohol and the importation of alcohol from other provinces in order to support their liquor monopolies. And the basis for that decision was really an acceptance of a number of arguments that were made that the regulation of alcohol is a public safety and health issue, which is so significant that the creation of a monopoly over alcohol sales um, can be justified on those issues. I was surprised to some extent by the decision because as far as I could see, there was very little evidence presented to the court to support that argument, I did not see any appreciable evidence that was presented by the provinces uh, to support the assertion that it is necessary to create a liquor monopoly in order to address public safety and health issues. Um, So that was problematic to me that the court accepted that. Um, And they convicted Mr. Como um, of 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 that um, of, the, of of bringing the alcohol from Quebec. Um, there were there were on the bright side there were some there was some language in the case that said that if a province implemented measures that were 
primarily aimed at restricting trade between the provinces than that rather than public safety and health then that may be um i mean uh, may be able to be struck down those sorts of restrictions and, and that is reflective actually of the reasoning in a um a case uh in the united states which was the leading case called granholm where the us supreme court said that um provinces had to um, treat in-province uh, manufacturers of alcohol the same as out-of-province out manufacturers of alcohol. So, for example, if they allowed direct shipment of wine from a winery to a consumer within the province, they also had to allow that consumer to buy a wine from outside the province. And it's sort of the reasoning sort of fits together with the Como decision because they're saying, well, if there's no pub public safety and health issues with delivering wine within the province, then how can you say that it makes mm -hmm. a difference uh, when the wine is coming from outside the province? So that's basically where the Como case landed. It's that the provinces do have the right to make those restrictions, but if they do so, they can't do it um, on the basis that they're discriminating against. Um, uh, producers or or maybe even retailers in other provinces. So thank you. Uh, that was a great, excellent short summary of a very um, complex matter. And I understand that uh, BC wineries were observing as interested parties. I don't know if they made submissions. I can't recall, but at least certainly were observing. Some of them um, make submissions. Yeah. yeah. And so I guess that they were observing and making submissions because with the hopes that they would be able to ship direct to consumer in other provinces. Um, and I suppose the outcome of this case ha has left a bit of a limbo land because now province by province will decide how they will deal with importation and, yes. what import and what importation means in the modern landscape. And that gets us into the digital space. Yes. And it's, it's kind of bizarre really, because even framing this discussion using words like importation is somewhat odd. Mm -hmm. uh, most countries in the world do not have internal restrictions and you wouldn't be talking about importing wine from Bordeaux to Paris. No. Uh, you wouldn't be talking about importing wine. Um, actually, even within the European Union, you, you can move wine between countries without any problem. But it's, it's strange because, yeah, we talk about importing wine from British Columbia to Alberta when we're actually part of the same country. And that's kind of the, what's happened. We have this patchwork quilt of regulation, and basically each province is treated as if it was a different country. So for a consumer in um, Calgary, um, if they want to uh, get wine from British Columbia, um, it's just as restrictive. In fact, it's even more difficult than if you wanted to order wine from the United States. So on that point in Alberta, because that's been in the news a lot lately, uh, and I'm sure you've been asked to comment on this uh, in other forums. Um, so right now, as you understand the current lay of the land of the law, uh, and I'm hearing different views on this, are is it legal for BC wineries to ship direct to consumer? I suppose it's there in British Columbia and their consumers in Alberta, <laughs> um, you know, or is this a gray area uh, or, you know, or maybe there's no clear answer because of this patchwork that you've re referred to? Well, 
I would say it is somewhat of a gray area. Um, there's uh, some ambiguity in the various laws that are applicable, and there's also a bunch of pretty significant legal questions about jurisdiction and whether, for example, a liquor regulator in Alberta has jurisdiction over a winery in another province that is shipping wine from British Columbia to a customer in Alberta. Um, however, I think at least on these particular issues, there may perhaps be a simpler way of looking at it rather than dealing with some of the more complicated legal questions. In my mind, you can look at the applicable Alberta law, and you can probably resolve it on that basis. Um, Alberta law for a long time, for many years, clearly stated that Alberta residents can import alcohol for personal consumption from other provinces. Um, the law was amended a few years ago, and now it says that Alberta residents can import alcohol from other provinces subject to the policies of the board, which is AGLC. Mm -hmm. um, but the law pretty clearly says that Albertans have the right under the law to import wine from other, other provinces. Uh, what has happened in Alberta now is that AGLC has created a policy that Alberta residents can't do that at all personally. Any wine from other Canadian provinces, they're saying, has to go through the Alberta liquor distribution system. And I think that that is problematic because I don't think that AGLC has the power under that legal provision to contradict the plain meaning of the words. I think that they have the power to uh, tell people that they have to pay the taxes that are mm -hmm. applicable. They mm -hmm. could set up a process for doing that. They could issue permits. They could make people fill out a form and submit the tax money. They could even put limits on the amount of, of, of alcohol that you could bring in from time to time. But I don't think they have the power to say you can't do it at all when the law says that you can't, that Alberta residents sh should be able to. So I think, in my mind, that would be a way to resolve it if a court ever looked at it. Right. Um, and the other issue too, which I think is important, is that Alberta actually permits its own small manufacturers to ship direct to consumers within Alberta. They have a system and a process for allowing that. Um, so what they're saying is it's okay for a producer in in Calgary to ship to a customer in Edmonton, but it's not okay for a, a, a producer in Kelowna to ship to the same customer in Edmonton. And I don't think that is permissible under Canadian law either, because uh, as I explained earlier, that's a discriminatory provision, um, which I think under the reasoning in Como would be disallowed because um, it uh, goes directly to the heart of uh, interprovincial trade. So it's an interesting point about the framework internal and um, you mentioned paying duties or taxes or charges, however we want to um, describe them, depending where we are. Um, and this reminds me of a discussion I had with John Skinner in the last episode, which is in his view where he's sitting, he would be happy if it's a matter of confirming that the taxes are paid that are required to be paid if 
and he'd be happy to pay them if there was a system set up and he could still deliver directly to consumers, happy to do it. So it sounds to me there's probably a system within Alberta set up for an accounting by producers for this. So um, I guess time will tell, but um, often we think things often come down to taxes and we live in a very um, complex myriad of tax regimes in Canada. So perhaps people are going to spend some time thinking about that. I I don't know. (laughs) That's too practical, a a too practical uh, an assumption. (laughs) Well, that's part of the absurdity of all of this too, is that um, for a long time, Producers in Canada, um, there, there's a national um, uh, association of wineries, Wine Growers Canada, and they have for a long time been been arguing and trying to work with the provinces to set up a tax collection system so that um, wineries could ship from one province to the other. Um, but the provinces haven't agreed to that, um, which is kind of crazy. Um, and as I mentioned, if you live in Alberta and you want to order a case of wine from California, AGLC has a system for doing that. And there's a system whereby you can pay the taxes. Um, So it's a little crazy that um, an an Alberta resident can order wine from outside the country and pay the taxes and and import the wine. But the liquor regulator has decided that they're not going to permit uh, a comparable system uh, for wineries in other provinces. Um, I mean, that really does seem to point to a fundamental problem uh, that's wrong with Canada at the moment in terms of internal trade. Uh, how can we operate as a unified country when we have barriers like that and you know, create, frankly, crazy policies that make it more difficult for us to trade with and do business with ourselves, and it's easier to trade and do business with people from outside the country. That just doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. And it was already a head scratcher for me, but in light of some of the other things you've been mentioning here, it's even more of a head scratcher. And I, you know, I know we've discussed this before, but I had the fortune to live in Australia for many years, which also is a federation, um, in their case, states and and territories. And um you can buy wine made in Australia anywhere you are in Australia. You can buy it at bottle shops. You can go into restaurants. There is no inter-border trade dispute or barrier. You you just can do it. <laughs> um, and, and there's free flow. There's There are no, there are no, no issues there. And it seems to me, um, just looking at how the industry is doing, and, and there is a real Team Australia approach to their industry, they have huge diversity in their great production and geographically in their terroir, very similar to how we have big diversity here. Um, But it seems to me it's one less, well, many less levels of um, entanglement that producers need to deal with so they can really focus on their business and making wine and getting it to the people. So having said that, and you mentioned the European Union and also United States and, um, you know, is there anywhere that we can look to outside uh, as a template to try and uh, convince, <laughs> you know, can the consumers get behind something and say, hey, it works here, or maybe we've named the places where it can work. Um, you know, is this is this something, I guess I'm just kind of really asking rhetorical questions here. 
Um, but what could be the next logical step to trying to reduce these borders? Is it consumer awareness, perhaps, um, or or maybe just time? I, I mean, I guess I'm saying this in the also just speaking aloud. Increasingly, we're transacting in the digital landscape. You know, we transact with each other from our homes and our computers for all sorts of services and products. Maybe it's just a matter of time when the regulators are going to catch up. Well, I think that I guess there would be two ways that I would look at that. I mean, the first argument would be as far as I can see, this is definitely making a mountain out of a molehill. I think the vast majority of consumers, if they choose to drink alcohol, they go to their neighborhood store and they usually buy the alcohol uh, close to home. Um, I think there's a statistic that about 95% of bottles of wine are drunk within 48 hours of purchase. Um, so I don't think interprovincial trade in alcohol would really have much significant effect on the marketplace. Generally, if you are going to order a, well, you wouldn't order a bottle of wine because it would be too expensive to ship it. But even if you're going to order a case of wine, uh, you'd only be doing that if you couldn't find the wine close closer to home anyway. Because if you order it from another province, it's going to take some time to get there. There's going to be shipping costs and all that kind of stuff. So I think the sort of, the extent of the problem is far overblown. Um, Manitoba, for example, when when the federal law was changed in 2012, when I went to Ottawa, there was a lot of speculation at the time, oh, this is going to significantly impact provincial liquor revenues and taxes. Um, Manitoba, right from the very beginning, had a, had a provision of their law, law that allowed Manitoba residents to buy alcohol from other provinces. And they, and they haven't Changed that since uh, since 2012, and their liquor revenues didn't go down at all uh, f- following the fact that their borders are theoretically open. So, as I said, I think it's a very small amount of alcohol um, that gets um, that's going to be part of this kind of trade. So, I think generally, provinces and liquor boards shouldn't really be worried about this, and I think it's not really that big a deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but even if you don't agree with me on that, you can look to the United States and see how it's being handled and how it's been fixed. In the US, they have opened up nearly all the states. They had a similar problem if you go back a few decades in the United States where there wasn't interstate shipment and sale of alcohol. Um, but that's been opened up over the years, and nearly all the states now are open open for direct consumer wine shipments. Um, and generally, what's happened is that the states have set up systems where the winery has to get a permit, they have to collect the taxes and file the taxes, that sort of thing. Um, but it's worked pretty smoothly. Um, oh, there, there's um, a fair, you know, this. You know, a, a small but significant amount of trade down there now using that system, um, and I, I think you can look down there and you can say, "Well, this works." If you want to collect the money, if you want to collect the taxes, and if you want to um, assert your authority as a 
as a state or provincial regulator, you can do that. Just set up a system. Just have a form that people fill out or make it online or whatever. Um, um, but it can work, and it can work well. So I think that the the template for doing it already exists, um, and it, it does not make sense for Canadian regulators to just say, oh, we don't want to do this at all, and we're going to ban it completely. I don't think that makes any sense. Thank you. I always appreciate how practical you are and you take things from altitude and um, and put things in perspective. So yes, I suppose in the big scheme of things, the direct-to-consumer channel is relatively small in the overall sales uh, volumes. However, for many small wineries, direct-to-consumer is really an important part of their business. And so I can see why this is a very um, sensitive issue for many, many people, because it's a, it's particularly now, <laughs> as small, a lot of small businesses and small wineries are having a very challenging time. Um, this could go, you know, this can go right to an important part of their fan base. So um, very difficult, very complex. Um, and also, this, I guess, doesn't really touch on something I referred to in the beginning. Well, it does in, in perhaps in broad terms, which is walking into any store in Canada and being able to buy product, any product made or available, um, you know, on the shelves. And I, I think there are probably other issues at play there. And perhaps that's from another episode. <laughs> we can get together and chat. Um, but for today, I think we'll leave it at that uh, because we could go on forever about the regulatory regime. But I would like to thank you so much for coming back on the show today to talk specifically about this issue. I get asked all the time. It's very complicated, uh, I think, to everyone, but in particular, the everyday consumer who perhaps isn't following the case law. And um, it sounds like right now it's a something, an issue that uh, will watch that space. So thank you so much. And thank you for your ongoing contribution to the industry and helping everyone navigate <laughs> these complexities. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tanya. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to my TT Wine Explorer podcast today. It's been great to have you along for the ride. Please do drop me a line if there are any topics or themes which you'd like to hear me discuss with guests on future shows. I'm all grassroots right now, so if there are any conversations which you hear which you think will resonate with any of your friends or colleagues, please forward it to them. You can find me on TT Wine Explorer podcast on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you listen to your podcasts. Take care. Take care.